And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, as they move smoothly into their second decade, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf back from a hiatus, a very, very long hiatus, on the Crude Street Podcast! And that, friends, is the longest hiatus in the history of the Crude Street Podcast, even counting the two mini-podcasts, which some of you may have heard from World Fantasy, where we talked to... Jack Zipes and to um, Eileen Gunn and to Ellen Clages. Before that, it was mid-October. So yeah, we are we are absolutely revenants at this point. <laughs> yes, I don't expect anybody in science fiction to remember that we still exist. That's, That's actually fine. my expectation, which is fine. It's great to be back. I think it's fair to say we have something of a commitment to try to stay back during the year. We don't mm-hmm. we don't anticipate super long hiatuses. In these dark and climate change times, I expect to travel a bit less than I have been, which means theoretically I'll be more available, you know. So hopefully at least an episode every two weeks is kind of what I'm hoping we'll get to do. And we should point out, I suppose, for the benefit of people who are unaware of your circumstance, that where you are right now in Perth is not actively on fire. You may be the only place in Australia that's not on fire at the moment. Actually, they came within about 40 kilometers of here. Wow. There were just, there were some, uh, fires over the last week in the southern suburbs of Perth. But generally, the fires in Western Australia have been in fairly remote rural areas. And if we're going to talk about the fires for a second, it's probably worth noting this so far actually isn't the biggest set of bushfires on record in terms of area of land covered. There was an enormous set of fires in the mid in the early 1970s that burnt out an enormous area of the um, interior of Australia. But these are unprecedented in terms of their severity and the area covered around populated areas and all sort of thing. And so when people talk, and you'll see talk about it, um, they talk about whether Australia will stay habitable in the, into the future. One of the things that has to be borne in mind is maybe they're talking about the way it is now. There are all sorts of beautiful parts of New South Wales, for example, which are on fire right now, where you can live amongst the leafy trees out in the semi-rural area on your property. Well, all those trees around your property are what are going to cause the problem. And so how do you balance that, particularly when one of the recipes for helping solve climate change is to to plant trillions of hectares of trees? Yes, right. And some of the problems, I gather, come from the fact that those attractive, expanded, habitable areas, as they were in California, the the fires in California last year were more dangerous because people had decided to move into into desert areas, essentially. Uh, And so you have what in the 1970s would not have been a populated area now is. That's true. And then you get the added science fictional 21st century twist that – there's an awful lot of misinformation being you know, spread on social media about the extent mm. and severity of the fires and where they're happening, and that's a concern. And also the causes of the fires. A lot of talk about um, arson, and there are some cases of arson, but not as widespread as been as has been mm. suggested. And also, you know, sort of the fact that you know the, the climate we're in right now, where because of well climate change, the accelerated energy in the system changes to the various weather systems over Australia, the humidity is very low. The weather is very hot. It is very windy. Mm. Um, because of the longer fire seasons over the last 10 years, it's actually been harder to c- conduct controlled burns during the off-season to help reduce uh, the amount of fuel that's available to burn fires. Right. So there's all these kind of things coming together. Mm. And this is what's going to happen all around the world, of course, in different ways. This will join up with that, will join up with that, and suddenly, and the areas that are going to suffer the most, I mean, Australia's suffering right now, and mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's terrible, but you have to remember we're still in the first third of the, of the, of the bushfire season. This is not a late season event. Which is astonishing, yeah. Uh, but, but it'll be places like Bangladesh, where, where there will be real, real suffering. I mean, it's terrible here right now, but it's still, and, the kind of things that you don't expect to happen are happening. I mean, Canberra, which is a leaf, a, a small leafy city that is also mostly administrative. It's the, it's equivalent mm. to DC, right? Washington, DC. Uh, has had the worst air quality in the world for like two weeks. 
uh, our mutual friend Elisa Krasenstein of uh, 12th Planet Press, who's just moved back to mm-hmm. Western Australia, her children weren't allowed, allowed out, outside of daycare to play for weeks on end because of the air quality from these fires. You know? Which, it's, it's to me, it's astonishing because when you see things like that, which are, which are science fiction scenarios, I guess the thing that, I, I don't want to use the word appealing, but fascinating, hypnotically fascinating. I feel like I could watch these news footages, footage of, of rapidly expanding holocausts. Uh, endlessly because they look like science fiction images. And yet, when people, when journalists especially, try to look back and find science fiction predicting this, it really isn't there. There are stories, people go back, for example, and look at J.G. Ballard. They look at the drought, which was uh, the burning world, it was called, I think, in the U.S., or the drowned world. Those were surrealistic, metaphorical kind of modernist novels. They weren't science fictional extrapolations. Um, there were, as far as I know, uh, and I may be wrong, there is one novel, uh, which was not published as a science fiction novel at the time, which was actually told from the point of view of a forest fire. Uh, and that was a novel by George R. Stewart, the author of Earth Abides, which was simply called Fire. Um, and it, but it made the point that a fire is like a character. It has a personality. It, it approaches civilized society the way an alien invasion would in a way and yet that wasn't science fiction at all so by and large has science fiction just missed the boat on things like this i mean now that it's happening of course we're writing about on climate on climate change on man-made climate climate change change, yeah yeah i think it mostly has you can always look back at exceptions and variations Mm -hmm. the most notable variation to my mind or exception is kim stanley robinson who well, yeah. wrote climate change folk type fiction back in the 80s and 90s. You know, you can see that there in the background, what he's doing. But by and large, written science fiction hasn't or didn't pay much attention to the uh, climate change warnings that were coming out of scientific reports through the 80s, 90s and early 2000s. So it's really only been through the 2010s, which have just come to a close, mm-hmm that we saw the slow rise of uh, climate change as being a fixed backdrop to science fiction or foregrounded. I mean, Paolo Bacigalupi is a great example of a writer who foregrounded climate issues in his fiction. And Sam Robbins did it again, and there are lots of other examples now. When you look at the year we've just concluded, 2019, Mm -hmm. the year that you and I have been involved in summarizing for the Locus annual recommended reading list, and that I'm involved in working on summarizing for my year and review for my year's best science fiction, you can now see that climate change sits in kind of in, sorry for banging the microphone, in two different spots. It sits mm-hmm. foregrounded in a lot of work. I mean, one of, one of the top five anthologies of the year was the rather interesting uh, book, Current Futures, or, or Project, uh-huh. Current Futures. A, a sci-fi ocean anthology, which was a collection of about a dozen or so or so stories, all by major women science fiction writers, edited by Anne Vandermeer that appeared on a website funded by XPRIZE. Uh-huh. And they looked at issues around the ocean, and all of those are intensely climate-focused. You can see – and so there's that kind of foregrounding. But if you pick up a book like, say, The Mythic Dream, which is the Narva Wolf Dominic Prisian book – or a People's mm-hmm. Future of the United States, which is the Victor Laval, John Joseph Adams book, right? Right. F- backgrounded very heavily in a lot of those stories. Climate change pushes the world. Climate change changes the world. Now, how are we coping with it? You know? So. Oh, yeah, I, I, I think that's what's happened. I think we've skipped over the, um, the awful warning phase to some extent to the, let's assume it's simply there. I mean, as recently as, uh, as far back as the 90s, I remember reading in Stephen Baxter novels just offhand references to the Florida archipelago. Uh, you know, the, the climate change is inevitable. We're in the middle of it now. We're not warning people about it anymore, uh, except in that specific subset of science fiction meant to address uh, specific issues in the future. Yeah. You mentioned, for example, the, well, the like Anne Vandermeer anthology, the, the MIT anthologies, the 12 Tomorrows, same kind of thing. Let's focus on actual policy issues that might affect our, perform- our behavior today. 
Yeah. I mean, certainly if you look back, uh, people like, say, Paul McCauley wrote a terrific novella, the name of which is escaping me right now, which had backgrounded a flooded you know, England, mm-hmm. uh, which had been you know, drowned out. You could argue that there was a note to it in popular culture like The Clash's London Calling. It has that kind uh, of collapse and whatever else in it. True. But, but I, I think it's fair to say that just as society at large has struggled to come to terms with confronting the idea of climate change, so has science fiction. Now the question is, how do you talk about it in a reasonable way, a non-over-the-top kind of a way, to actually move forward? And how do you write fiction? I mean, there's a lot of talk about climate, climate punk, cli-fi, hope punk, uh-huh. these kinds of things. How do you come up with something that doesn't sound hopelessly naive to a reader? I mean, particularly like right now, I mean, if... Uh, our mutual friend James Bradley has a new climate change related novel following on from Clade, though unrelated, oh. a book called Ghost Species that's coming out from Penguin in Australia in March, I think, or April. I'm looking forward to it. And it confronts, it discusses these issues very centrally at the very front of things as you deal with this strange sense of fear and mourning for the loss of the world that we have around us, all that kind of stuff. So that's the thing. I mean, even someone like, I don't know if you saw this, because it only showed up from me a couple of days ago, um, McSweeney's, right? I've not seen it. I've seen I've seen you, I've seen references to it. See, uh, that's because I'm part of a community you're not part of, Gary. Oh, the you're part of that, up, uh, that upscale literary community. No, that, no, no, no. Yeah, the people who you, pay you for their books, Gary. With, with Michael Chabon and those people all the time, I can tell. I bought one. Okay, but, fine. But, but this is interesting because this issue of McSweeney's number 58 is called 2040 AD and it's getting writers to forecast what a climate changed world will be like in just 10 years from now if we have the rate of uh, change that could, could happen. It makes for a very uh-huh. interesting book. I want to like s- sort of step around though because although Australia is burning with all mm-hmm. good luck and good hope, those fires will go out in the coming months and we will move on to something else. So I want to start with this because we probably should have started at the beginning to give our cheery little podcast some kind of structure. Yes. How do you feel looking back about 2019? Uh, we had, okay, uh, just a confession for people who don't think we ever plan. We actually did talk about this in advance. We were talking about what important things happened in science fiction in, in, in 2019. 2019, did not have um, N.K. Jemison winning the third consecutive Hugo Award. She'd done that in 2018. So I think a lot of the changes, a lot of the kind of um, cultural shift in science fiction over the last 10 years was, I think, solidified. I don't think 2019 was a revolutionary year, but I think things came home to roost. By, by that, I mean this. Names of awards. Well, I was going to say, I was just for- writing something up, and I think that in August of 20, 2019, when we were all in Dublin, there was a uh-huh. tipping point moment. Now, I don't, yeah. I, I think a tipping point moment is a good way to look at it because I don't think it itself was the thing. I think it pushed things over the edge. And I'm referring exactly. to when Jeanette Ng, who was the, uh, uh, who was presented with the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, gave a really passionate speech calling out John W. Campbell for his racial and political views and it re- led very quickly to the change of the uh the, the the Campbell Award for Best New Writer being changed by Dell Awards to being now the Astounding Award I think it is Astounding Award yeah and the Gun, the gun Center who present the the, the, the Gun Center uh, and some of these are frankly overdue I mean the, the the Gun Center Award what used to be the Campbell Award given up by the University of Kansas uh, was really called the Campbell Award, I'm guessing, because of James Gunn's relative modesty. Well, uh, the thing there, though, Gary, give- I just need to just interrupt and check. When I looked, I know they've changed the name of their conference, but have they changed the name of the award? I think it's now called the Gun Center Award, if I'm not mistaken. See, I, just, I know that the convention is now the Gun the, the Gun Conference, but I, I couldn't right. find proof that the actual award had been changed. So you want to be careful saying that. But the other okay. one that followed on was more concerning to me. Mm-hmm. And that was the Tiptree Motherboard decided to change the name of the Tiptree Literary Award to the Otherwise Award. And that was sort of kind of of a piece with what's happening overall. And this whole tipping point's kind of an idea, which I think is really happening. 
but it was also a felt different from what was happening with Campbell. Where, you know, Campbell was well known for his problematic views. I think it was uh, well. I, th- I think the uh, it, it it bothered me as well. And one of the questions I have not answered, or I've not had answered, or I haven't looked up, is whether or not the uh, the Tiptree fellowships that are provide uh, funds for people to to attend, I believe, Wisconsin, whether those have been renamed, or whether it's just the award that's been renamed. One of the problems I have with that is that the otherwise award strikes me as being an in- a really dull name. Well, uh, I'm not too worried about that, Gary, only because. That's always going to be the case. You get, that's what you're used to, right? And I think there's a sentiment right now in the science fiction field not to name awards after individuals anymore. And I, I think can that's absolutely always sympathize with that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, for me, centi- I absolutely stand behind the changes to the World Fantasy Award that were made after Nedia Korafor highlighted H.P. Lovecraft and they moved to the, mm-hmm. the new award design a couple of years ago. Personally, I think the new award design is dull and boring and I don't like it. But I will also say it's a change, and you just have to live with it for a while. It'll settle in. Well, I, I think just, one of the yeah, well, and one of the points I've made every time I've had a conversation about this is that an organization that gives out an award has an absolute right to name the award what uh, the award whatever they want to what to, to name it. I mean, it's it's not as though uh, the fans of a particular writer, supporters of a particular writer. Uh, own the award that somebody else has chosen to name after that writer. I think when you're dealing with Lovecraft and you're dealing with Campbell, you have large, uh, fairly uh, significant track records, public tra- track records, public statements made, public attitudes, um, racist poems and, and, and racist segments of stories, at least, uh, by Lovecraft and endless Campbell editorials. I mean, if, the one thing I've not seen anybody, well, a few people have talked about this. Um, uh, I, I, I think Cory Doctorow did. I know Alec Neville D, uh, Lee did. Um, but if you actually look at all the Campbell editorials, that's decades of public, uh, well, publicly embarrassing, stupid things that he said. Um, in the case that, of but, yeah. Tip, Tip, yeah. Tip, Tip Tree, it's not public behavior. Tip, the Tip Tree Award was renamed based on events that people don't really know what happened. It's, 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 and, and that bothers me a little bit because that's much more of a personal thing. Tiptree was not a publicly offensive figure the way Campbell and... Um, yeah, I, I don't really want to go Love. too far into the Tiptree thing other than to say that I think it feels different and I'm troubled by it. You know, I don't think it's necessarily the wrong thing to have done, but it does feel quite different. Uh, I will say, it's not an evil thing to change the wallpaper of the field a bit. Um, and, and in a sense, that's a little bit of what's happening. We talk, or I talk a lot about science fiction and fantasy becoming more inclusive and more representat- representative and embracing voices from around the world more. You know, if that's going to happen, then the way we talk about science fiction and fantasy has to ch- change to reflect that too. And that means that some of the focus on historical figures will change. And I think that's appropriate. I don't think that it's erasure, which a lot of people talk about. I don't think anyone can sanely say that John W. Campbell is being erased from the history of science fiction. He's being contextualized. And I think that's an appropriate thing to have happen. Well, in a recent essay, uh, another essay by by Alec Nevololi, who is... This, to be honest, has done more research about these figures than anybody else in the last 20 years. A recent essay about Asimov uh, raised a very interesting question, and that is Asimov's attitude toward women, which was roundly celebrated by his fellow male writers during his career, uh, might have frightened women away from uh, from science fiction conventions, or at least med- made them feel uncomfortable. There was never any discussion at the time that Asimov was actually invited. Somebody should point out it was not his idea. He was invited to do a talk about the fine art of bottom pinching or something like that, uh, and he agreed to do it. But but the whole culture was part of that. Hmm. And to some extent, you wonder how many science fiction fans were lost because of this kind of behavior uh, 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years ago. Absolutely. Well, if you're going to sit here, as we do, and we say that the current president of the United States enables behavior, having mm-hmm. a major community leader and a very high-profile community leader like Isaac Asimov 
behaving in that sort of way, it would not only, it's not even only reasonable to say that his own behavior would have been very difficult for people to uh, tolerate for, for and could very well exclude women from the field. But the kind of follow-on permission it gave to other people to act in similar ways would also have been real. Now, I guess you could say some of it was of the time, but that's not super convincing. I think, you know, science fiction was a lot less welcoming, that you know, particularly to women and people of color, than mm. it wanted to think it was. But anyway, let's let's circle around away from this a little bit because it, okay. it's not the whole heart right. of what we want to talk about. What other big issues during the year struck you? Um, well, let me think. Uh, that that certainly was one of them. I guess just from what I read, and I thought it was good news for the year, uh, were the number the, the amount of international science fiction we're beginning to see. I mean, there was there was a sense of breaking through. Uh, a barrier with with Sujin Lu with the three body problem. Uh, now in the past year, I've seen Korean, South Asian, Chinese. Uh, there, there's now an, an award for African science fiction. So there's now an effort, I think, a conscious effort on the part of publishers and editors, and I hope readers, to realize two things: one, that science fiction from other parts of the world is not imitation Anglo-American science fiction, and secondly. That some of it is, unfortunately. Well, you'll but, always get that. That's fine. I, I guess I'd say you, I, I agree completely. This is, to my aware, to my knowledge, right, an unprecedented year for tra- translated fiction. Absolutely unprecedented. The fact that I think it's probable that the Locus recommended reading list will include four anthologies of translations. I cannot remember any year when that ha- anything like that happened. When you have translated novels regularly be considered for major, well, first of all, appearing, I mean, forget being read and getting up for awards, just getting published for a start. And, and then, uh, work being, you know, getting up for major awards and being looked at without any real distinction and uh, from non-translated work. So if you look at what's been done by, well, the most obvious example, pardon me, is Neil Clark and his team at Clark's World for Chinese science fiction has centralized, normalized translated fiction from that part of the world and from Korea, and it's happening at light speed, and there's interest and push for it elsewhere. And what begins to happen as this normalizes is not only is there a system, I mean, it's currently one that's based on, on, on support rather than actual revenue, but not only is there a system for bringing translated fiction into the country and for readers to experience and become familiar with Sisin Lu or Han Song or Regina, whoever, you know, there's also, I think, a belief now growing in those writers that they can get into this, you know, this market and be seen without being separated out as being Major genre writers. I mean, I read a, it's an interesting report on Locus's website written by Lavi Titar about a visit he just made to China with Ian McDonald to attend a conference. And at one point, there's a photograph where there's Han Song and Sisin Lu and two other gentlemen. They're talking about how these were the big four in inverted commas of Chinese science fiction. They were the, you know, the Heinlein, the, the, the Asimov, the Clark. And once upon a time, those sorts of comments appeared kind of like, in inverted commas, you know, it'd be like the Galaxy Award is the Chinese Nebula. Now there's more feeling like, well, we have more understanding of these people and their their situation, these writers and their situation. And so we actually do take that into account and understand. And then you begin to see that, well, Xixin Lu is just simply one of the most important hard science fiction writers of the 21st century. Not Chinese, just science fiction writers. Uh, no, I think that's true. And you can see, I, like, I, I think, yeah. Well, and you could mention uh, some South Asian writers. Vandana Singh, I suppose, uh, comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, or even mainstream writers like Amitav Ghosh, who have more or less embraced science fiction. Here's an interesting question, though. Is this past year, I, I saw a lot of Asian and South Asian Korean. Has European science fiction? fallen behind Asian science fiction in terms of its visibility in the United States and England and Australia? Maybe. I mean, 
I'm probably overlooking stuff. I mean, I, I'm beginning to see some stuff in translation. I just saw a translated Italian science fiction and fantasy anthology uh-huh. get published in the last two months. Um, I don't know what the actual barriers are there, uh, but certainly I don't see a lot right now, and I'm probably missing it, and so it's my ignorance, not the truth of it, but still from Poland. Well, I mean, if you, uh, uh, I'm thinking a few years ago, and I've, I remember having a, having a conversation with James Morrow, did a an, an anthology of international science fiction. It was called the International Science Fiction Hall of Fame or something like that. And it really didn't do too well. It didn't bring a lot of authors to the attention of American readers. There was an effort by uh, uh, Tor Books to to reprint the German writer Andreas Eschbach, who was very successful in German science fiction. Those names don't seem to have taken... Uh, as much traction as as Sushin Lu, for example. Well, it, I could be completely wrong, and I will now put my hand up there and say I'm probably completely wrong. But what I suspect, Gary, is that uh, something you said earlier on is true, that the three-body problem getting the kind of attention that it got, winning the awards that it got, uh, changed the equation. And right now this, the, the system is in place and is being actively supported within China to get mm. Chinese science fiction out and that's beginning to pull through almost in similar ways uh, Korean, South Asian science fiction. There's also I think a growing belief maybe and I'm, I'm guessing here but there's a few indications within those countries that there is a greater place for it. So for example mm. Hachette India published two, their first two science fiction fantasy anthologies ever. So they did Magical Women, and they did the Galact- the uh, Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction by Taron Saint, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's about to be or has been reprinted by Golan's in the UK under a different title to make in it available. In the UK, I was wondering if that was going to get a UK reprint. Yeah, it is. Reprint under a different title, but still, it's the, the, the same book. And I know that Taron Saint is working on a second book to follow on from the Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction. Well, so, as, as Terence Saint admitted in the introduction to that, there are only essentially three South Asian countries included in that anthology, yeah, yeah. and other countries need to be included, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and so forth. Absolutely. But, I mean, we had books like Ready-Made Bodhisattva, which was the uh-huh. uh, Kaya anthology of South Korean science fiction, which was published in the United States. There was uh-huh. the, the Terence Saint's book. Probably the highest profile anthology of translated fiction was Ken Liu's anthology, uh, Broken Stars, which is out from Tor, and it's a collection of great science fiction from Tishin Lu, Han this, Song, this, people like this, that. This raises, this raises another issue for me, which I think has always been an issue with translated fiction of any kind. I think one of the reasons uh, for Tishin Lu's success, one of the reasons for Chinese science fiction's high profile, as much as it sounds oversimplified, belongs to Ken Lu, because, not only because he translates so much, because he translates really well um, and he, he will translate – if you look at the style of uh, – I, I noticed this in looking at, uh, I think, Broken Stars. He, he, it doesn't all sound like Ken Liu. A story sounds like he's trying to get at the dialect. He's trying to put in footnotes. This has been a problem historically. I mean one of the reasons that Jules Verne uh, was thought of as a children's writer in the United States and probably in England for a century was because the translations were by and large awful. Um, some of the translations we've seen uh, previously of European or Asian science fiction haven't been very good. We don't – a lot of American readers don't understand why Stanislaw Lim was so important because sometimes the English language versions are stilted and dry. Uh, the, he has been retranslated. There are better translations out there now, of course. But I think one of the things that we have to give some credit uh, to are translators who are themselves skilled writers with oh, extreme sensitivity to language. And the greatest example of that was uh, Kalpa Imperial, the book that was published by yeah. Small Beer, uh, Angelica Gorodish's book, which Gorodish, was translated yeah. by Ursula Le Guin. And of course, like anything Le Guin's going to do is going to be brilliant because she was so mm-hmm. so talented herself and then she had great work, to obviously, to translate. So, okay. So we agree that, tr- that translation science fiction has been unprecedented this year. There's been social change this year. What mm-hmm. else stood out for you, guys? Um, I guess one of the, um, there's a couple of minor pieces of news that I thought were good news. I mean, both 
Small Beer Press and George Martin opened independent bookstores. <laughs> There's something to be said. With, with, with the bad news of genre bookstores going out of business, having somebody, I mean, not, not that all of us can drive to you know, New Mexico uh, to go to the bookstore, but having successful authors support independent bookstores, which is something not confined to science fiction writers. James Patterson has done this for a long time, supporting libraries. I think there's been a, an up an uptick in what I would consider author and publisher activism in terms of uh, supporting the way books get to readers. Mm, I think that's probably true. I mean, I think from the way I understand it, overall book sales are, are, are strong. So yeah. the state of publishing and, and whatever else that gets books out to you is... is you know, solid and, and you know, that is good, even though obviously there have been changes to uh, large-scale book chain kind of things. I was going to say, every time somebody like, like Barnes & Noble was sold to whatever complex, I guess, owns Waterstones, I don't know whether that's good news or bad. Uh, it's, it strikes me it, it consolidates book sales, uh, in the States at least, in a way that is nervous-making. And the more you see the health of independent booksellers or or independent booksellers being saved from oblivion, the more I think that's an encouraging sign. Yeah, well, that's true. And there are all kinds of varied signs out there about how things are going. I mean, in the short fiction market, you know, we had small small press magazines close up shop. We had a couple open, but more closed than open in the last year. You know, there's still that push towards trying to find a way to make – short fiction pay, if that's even possible. I was, uh, when I was researching my year in review uh, article, I went back and I read Gardner Dozois' introduction for his year's best science fiction for the year 2000. And it's kind of fascinating because he talks about, you know, will, will that upstart new company Amazon actually survive? And you, and you think, hey, Gardner, that, it worked out okay for them. But in amongst there, like, will anybody ever find a way to make money um, publishing fiction online because that appeared to be something that was sitting there to do. And I think we're actually beginning to see that push start because probably unbeknownst to most readers, a lot of the fiction magazines, and I would exempt from this analog Asimov's FNSF but, and Tor, most of the... Uh, Short fiction magazines are dependent on volunteer labor to exist. They are not making lots and lots of money. And this is at least part in part because we are living in a world where we expect our short fiction to be free. And you, you're seeing with places, magazines like Fire and Fireside, they're beginning to take this, this sort of model that the Washington Post and other places have taken of being to say, well, hang on, we need to start charging for what we're doing because it has a commercial value to people and we need to actually cover the costs that we have. I mean, the the fact that Clark's World, whilst it makes money and they work very hard, it's a great magazine, doesn't make enough money to pay everybody properly is a problem. The fact that Lightspeed doesn't is a problem. The fact that Uncanny, even though they pay everybody but their senior, you know, the two principals, the, the two Thomases, nonetheless can't do enough to pay the Thomases, so they're existing on volunteer labor, you know, and it's because we don't, we're not accustomed to paying. We have an expectation now after 25, 30 years of publishing fiction online for that stuff to be free. And generally, if you look online, the stuff that actually is voted very highly, quite often it's stuff that's available. Um, I mean, I can see that I'm not going to name it, like of the top five most popular stories or best, best, Regarded short story, uh, stories on the, for Locus recommended reading list, list, only one of them was published in a pay for pay a pay venue. All the others were where you could read for free. Well, this is a problem that comes up. It's, it obviously comes up with the Locus Awards. It comes up with the Hugo Awards. It probably comes up with the Nebula. It's simply more people are going to read a free story than a story they have to pay for. Uh, I think the market is being tested in a little in in, in a way by. And in a completely different arena by things like Apple TV and Disney TV and all these all these things. If you want to watch The Mandalorian, now you have to pay for it um, in I some think, way or another. I think arguably an encouraging sign is what's happened at novella length. Because 
We are, as people will tell you, and there's an article which even though it didn't really elucidate on why, says there's a golden age in novellas in science fiction right now. And it's a fair comment. There really is. Markets have been created. And all of those novellas, pretty much without exception, are in a a pay-for-play circumstance. I mean, I can look at a list of 30 or 40 novellas, and I don't think you could read any of them, maybe one or two, without actually paying up front. Now, that's encouraging. It shows that people are willing to pay for them if it's framed for them in the right way. And so it's segueing that kind of experience, I think, will be a challenge, into the rest of short fiction. I think that's a difficult proposition for a couple of reasons. One is, the, the you're right, the novella market is a market in a way the short story market isn't, meaning that it's it, it, it's it's saleable for, for money. I think part of the popular... Another reason for the popularity of novellas is that increasingly, it seems, we're given a choice between um, a manageable novella. We can read a lot of novellas before we finish one trilogy or one six or seven volume fantasy series and so forth. Novella is a very attractive thing to read. And I think one of the things I've noticed as a reader is that I appreciate novellas because – they're not novels. I mean, by which I mean <laughs> that the author and the editor together have figured out this is the right length for this story. And uh, it's very possible that 10 or 20 years ago, those things would have been, let's bloat it, let's, let's double and triple the length and make a novel out of it and make, make, make more money. If there's a market for novellas, there's a market for more efficient writing. However, you're still, when you're reading a novella, to me, you have the feeling of reading a novel. Uh, there was a time when the term short novel and the term novella were virtually interchangeable. And even now, there are all kinds of classic novels that technically would be novellas by The Old Man and the Sea, for example. So so the novella is a product in a way a short story isn't a product. A short story historically well, has been... I don't know. I mean, I mean for start, I mean, probably... The, the, okay. The home of the novella right now is Tor.com Publishing. I think that's a f- reasonably fair comment. They're producing, they're publishing a lot of them. They get a lot of readership. It's not every top novella. And it's interesting that, as will happen from time to time, probably the number one buzziest novella of the whole year wasn't published by Tor.com. It was published by Saga Press, which was Amal Elmotar and Max Gladstone's This Is How You Lose the Time War, which, ev- which everybody just fell in love with, right? And they sold lots and lots of copies. But Tor also sell all of their individual pieces of short fiction through digital retailers. That works. Uh, Amazon have stepped into this space as well. You see, here's the thing. What you listener cannot see is Gary's looking skeptical when I say that. But that's because he doesn't see sales figures for it. One of the things about that sits in this sort of space, it's true of publishing generally, is by and large, information isn't widely publicly available. But, and I'm just making up figures, if I told you that regularly short stories published for a dollar a copy through Amazon sell 8,000 or 10,000 copies, would that surprise you? I think it would. Well, I think you need to be prepared to be surprised. I think people are willing, when it's framed right, to pay money. One of the things that happens with some of the, with, with magazines and anthologies is they're clustered in the groups. You don't see it as a individual sale. You don't sort of see the idea that, you know, well, w- when we look at novellas, we know clearly that, you know, um, the haunting of Tramcar 15 was by PGLA Clark and that's hit, that's a standalone kind of a book. But if the haunting of Tramcar 15 had appeared in, and in the people's future history of the United States, say, it would get a different kind of attention. It wouldn't be seen quite as clearly. And that's what's kind of being looked at right now. And a place you can see it happening are these projects that Amazon published during the year. Uh, there was Forward and another one, which were clusters of short stories by, in some cases, quite big-name writers, usually about six or eight of them. Uh, Lauren Bucus was involved, N.K. Jemison was involved, a bunch of other people, Veronica Roth. And you could buy these as standalone individual stories. You could buy them as a, a collection of, I think, the six or eight for each theme of the two themes they did. And I think they're going to do more of these. So you can see more of this stuff as people try and look at why, for example, why is it okay to individually wrap a story that 
20,000 words long, but not 16,000 words long. There are some differences, but, you know, uh, so. That's true. There are some differences, but I think there's another. As I say, there's a certain length at which you begin to think of a story as a product. And I grew up in a generation in which books, the products consisted of books or magazines. And one of the things in the magazine over, over a period of time uh, is that you, or an anthology for that matter, you learn that you will trust the judgment of Sheila Williams to give you a good package of stories, or Gardner Dozois, or Robert P. Mills back in the day with uh, fantasy and science fiction. In other words, the idea that every every issue of a magazine is a small anthology, and you expect to see some things in it that you really want to see. You might see flowers for Algernon in fantasy and science fiction. But at the same time, you'll see things that you would not have bought. You'll see things that you've never heard of. You'll see writers that are completely new to you. And because you have this product, this magazine, or this anthology, you will discover new writers. How do you discover new writers when you know in advance which writers you're going to buy stories from? You don't. You need a mechanism. And this is the, the great digital challenge, is how you introduce new things. Now, one thing that happens with the Tor.com novella line, I think, is the people behind Tor.com, and I flag again that I work with them, though the genius is theirs, not mine, is they've created Tor.com as a brand, and so people trust that brand when they put out a new yes, novella. Exactly. So a writer they may not, you might not have heard of, you will try because of that, and the prices are accessible and da-da-da-da. So there's more of that to do, and it would be good to see it happen with writers and translation and so on else. I want to segue around to what I've been trying to get to, because we're about 40 minutes into a hour-long episode. Mm-hmm. What individual works stood out for you, Gary? Ah. Uh. That's interesting because I'm not going to start with the obvious ones. I'm going to start with two things. And this is literally thinking back on the year, not even looking at my list. Um, two of the most enjoyable things I saw were conclusions of trilogies, which is important because I hate trilogies. I mm-hmm. really don't like to read trilogies. <laughs> um, one trilogy, which I read, I think, the entirety of during 2019 was Todd A. Thompson's Rosewater trilogy, mm-hmm. which – did a lot of different interesting things. The, the other one, which came as a surprise to me because I had read the first two-thirds of this trilogy years ago, was Michael Swanwick's The Iron Dragon's Mother, which is just a joyful celebration of genre in all kinds of ways, a mixture of fantasy and science fiction and kind of coming. And, and to some extent, what I saw in, um, in the Todd A. Thompson was as well. He was doing, in the middle volume, a lot of kind of suspense, a lot of fairly traditional science fiction tropes. And then there was a lot of political uh, sophistication in it, a lot of uh, cultural um, uh, conflict of the sort you wouldn't see in science fiction that is not set in Nigeria. So uh, I I think what I'm beginning to enjoy are writers who like to play with all the different tools of genre in the same book. Um, Well, certainly has been doing this for decades. Well, and this whole thing, you wrote a whole book about evaporating genres, Gary. As a matter of fact, I did. You did. did, did, Modesty is available from, probably not available from a good bookstore near you, but probably somewhere online still. You can get a copy of Evaporating Genres. Or Gary's probably got a garage full of them. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that the Rosewater trilogy was the trilogy of the year. I think so. Uh, And is the one that if you are going to be nominating for the Hugo Awards, uh, as you should be right now, because now is the time the Hugo Award nominations are open, and you're looking for best series, then Rosewater, which had two installments this year, would be one of them. Um, I think the buzziest book of the year was a first novel, and that was Gideon the Ninth, which is a science fantasy about lesbian nec- necromancers in space. Which is a very sort of huh, almost glib way of describing what actually is a, a very good book. Uh, Tamsin Yorho, I think, is originally from New Zealand, lives in the UK now. It's her debut. There was a batch of good debut, uh, debuts out this year. Um, I, I read it early in the year before it came out and fell in love with it. I, I think there are, I mean, I'm, I have to read this, the second book, Harrow the Ninth, which I have it here. Uh, before I really know how I feel about the end of Gideon, because it's how it links up as, as part of this trilogy of stories. Probably the book that I fell in love with the most this year, Gary, was The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex Harrow. I'd read one short story by, by Alex before that, 
and this book came out, and it's which a I think, which I think won the Hugo Award, didn't it? It did indeed. It was, I think, her yes. third or fourth story out, and she also has a great story that came out earlier this year uh, that people should check out. I think through on Kennedy or somewhere. But Ten Thousand Doors of January, great book, one of a batch of really strong first novels. I mean, I, originally I was going to say that I thought this was an extraordinary year for first novels, but the great thing about the health of the field is it's not. It's just another good year for first novels. I mean, this group of uh, of uh, first novels are all came out during the year and all stand out. There's Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir, which is a terrific book. Alex Harris' Ten Thousand Doors of January, a portal fantasy, strongly recommended. Arcady Martin had her debut novel out, a space opera called A Memory Called Empire. You had Sarah Pinsker's book, Song for a New Day. We talked to Sarah on the podcast. That, that's a terrific book. Tim Morn wrote and put out Infinite Detail, which is probably the science fiction novel of the year for me, and I would recommend unhesitatingly. But there are other really strong debuts by people like, oh, you reviewed Tanahisi Coates' book, The Water Dancer. There was Finder by Suzanne Palmer. There was the Chen Quifan book, Waste Time, talking about science fiction, fantasy, and translation. Lots of books, some really strong work across the, across the whole you know, spectrum of the field. Well, and there was, and there was some uh, again uh, to, to go back to unusual things. You, you mentioned Tanahasi Coates, uh, who's the water dancer, was a mainstream novel with, with with science fiction elements in it. And I think the other thing we're beginning to see uh, again, again, and I, uh, I'm, I'm well, the Booker Award went to to, to um, the Testaments, Margaret Atwood. And it's, it's Margaret Atwood has seems to have come to terms with the fact that she's writing science fiction, even though she denied it for a long time. I don't think people like ta Coates. I don't think people like Victor Laval. And in other words, there, there's this kind of ongoing uh, situation for the last six or seven years where you have major literary writers, uh, Colson Whitehead or Margaret Atwood or ta Coates, or, uh, <clears throat> feeling very comfortable writing in science fictional environments now. Uh, and to some extent... Uh, to some extent, I think we need to sort of return the favor. In other words, we didn't cover in Locus. I didn't cover in Locus, and it probably was my fault as much as anybody. I didn't cover Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Water Dancer, which deals with essentially teleportation, among other things. It's a very powerful novel about slavery, until it had kind of filtered into our consciousness. Um, I think there are, uh, we always want mainstream readers to discover our favorite science fiction writers, and eventually they do. Over a period of 50 years, the mainstream finally noticed Le Guin was there, or Philip K. Dick was there, or whatever. We need to return the favor. If somebody in the mainstream writes a story using science fiction and fantasy elements, even though they don't identify it as a genre story, those stories can sometimes be terrific, and usually they are. I did, I, to be honest, I don't think the Testaments is a necessary book. Um, as I said, I, preview, well, my, the, 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 the February issue with our year in review columns will be out. The Testaments is the Downton Abbey movie. Um, it's it's great. It's it's terrific. It's everything the people who are fans of Downton Abbey want to see, and it doesn't need to be there at all. And I think the same thing's true with the Testaments. The Testaments almost is a feel good sequel. Uh, to one of the most disturbing and grim dystopias of the 20th century, The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. We also had a batch of great second novels from people. I mean, we don't often talk about that, about that sort of thing, but two of our favorite San Franciscan writers, Gary, had very mm-hmm. strong books come out during the year. Charlie Jane Anders' uh, sophomore book, The City in the Middle of the Night, and Annalee Newitz's The Future of Another Timeline. I particularly liked Annalee's book. Uh, but other... Strong second novels included the, you know, G. Willow Wilson's, uh, the, the, the Bird King came Bird out this King. year. I mean, lots of other things written, but a, a second book in print. There was a whole batch, so it was, it was a good time. If you could point readers, because we will trail towards the end of our time soon, towards a, a couple of books they should race out and read, what would they be? Name five, I'll oh. name five. Five? Five. Five. You've got five. That's all you've got. These are the five. They don't have to be your top. They don't just... Go get these, particularly if they're ones that are maybe you think people might overlook. Like, nobody in 2020 is going to overlook Agency by William Gibson, which comes out in a week or two. So, what might they overlook? 
Let me um, – I'm going to cheat now. I'm going to do what you do all the time. I'm going to look at some things. Okay, let me let me start by uh, saying – we've already mentioned Waste Tide, City in the Middle of the Night. Uh, one of the things about Annalise's book, which you didn't mention, which I think is interesting and may be an indication of what can happen in science fiction, is that she invents a completely new time travel mechanism in that novel. It's, it's, it's a novel – which, which is part of the ongoing dialogue between history and science fiction and fantasy. And that was a big deal. I mean, historical fiction merging with science fiction and fantasy was an issue in The Bird King. It was an issue in uh, the Anna Lee Newitz novel. It was an issue in uh, a, a novel which had a huge amount of buzz at the beginning of the year and seems to have faded was – I was talking about mainstream writers writing fantasy – was was Marlon James's Black Leopard, Red Wolf, which oh, very it's getting much right impressed up, Gary. me. It's getting write-ups. It's, it's getting write-ups, but it impressed me more when I read it than it does when I recall it. Fair enough. So uh, you, would, you would recommend people seek that one out then or not? Or Well, I, I would recommend they seek that one out. I would recommend – and there are different reasons for it, but as long as I'm on this kick about historical fiction, another second novel, I guess, I think, in a trilogy was Zen Cho's second novel of her – a Regency fantasy romance the true thing. Queen. The, uh, yeah. the true queen, yes. Um, and that was largely a lot of fun. And I think one of the things that when we get um, into discussions like this, we're trying to look at quote-unquote important novels. There are a lot of important feminist and cultural and racial issues in Zen Cho's novels, but they're also just a lot of fun. You can see she's having a lot of fun with it. Uh, I would say the one book that is kind of a cliche because everybody else has said it, but you have to read it if you want to know what's going on with science fiction. Not a novel. It was Ted Chang's Collection Exhalation. Uh, it clearly uh, was not surprisingly uh, one of the best books of the year. I'm going down the list. We've not mentioned Guy Gabriel Kay. History again. Hi science fiction is colonizing historical fiction. It's taking it over. Um, it's it's doing it in all kinds. Of, Joe Walton's writing hang, historical hang fiction. You're talking about a fantasy. brightness long ago. A uh, brightness long ago was Guy Gabriel Kay's thing. Uh, Joe Walton's novel was a novel about Savonarola called Lent, which was essentially a historical novel with with alternate history timelines worked through it and so forth and so on. Uh, the uh, uh, historical okay, history is not all. Anglo-American history. In other words, we talked about you, – you mentioned the Bird King. The Bird King deals with Muslim Spain. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, – one of my – one of the most enjoyable novels was um, Gods of Jade and Shadow, Silvio Moreno-Garcia, which is essentially a historical novel about Mexico in the 1920s. I mean, okay, there are resurrected gods in it, and resurrected gods were a thing this year too because there's also Had Hossein's uh, – the, 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 you know – the Gurkha and the – what am I thinking of? Okay, the, you've done more than your Lord five. You've done more than mm -hmm. – okay, I'm going to do five, okay? Okay, you do five. Okay, five books that I loved during the year, right, mm -hmm. and recommend happily. Elizabeth Baer wrote The Space Opera of the Year, Ancestral Night, opening book of a new series, smart, delightful, engaging, dark, absolutely uh -huh. recommended without any hint of hesitation – I also recommend A Little Hatred by Joe Abercrombie, which returns to his mm. first law universe with a industrial revolution setting, which is powerful and great. Not Notice so that there's I didn't another also, historical theme in that one. Not so that I didn't love Guy Gabriel Kay's book of Brightness <laughs> Long Ago, because I did, and similarly mm. loved The Iron Dragon's Mother, which you've also mentioned. So I won't put those in my five, even though they could easily have been there. Gideon the Ninth belongs in that list. If, I think if you want any feel mm -hmm. for what happened in science fiction and fantasy in 2019, you have to read it and The Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alexi e. Harrow. I think you also have to read, or, well, I would strong, I think you would enjoy, dear listener, reading too would be a better way to put it. I'm rattling off have tos after all this time. Infinite Detail, which I mentioned by Tim Morn from FSG, mm -hmm. which is the best cutting edge uh, science fiction book of the year. I don't recommend Ted Chang's Exhalation is my collection of the year, Gary. I actually think really? by comparison to Stories of Your Life, it's a little disappointing. Not quite as strong, not quite as even. So I'm going to recommend The Best of Greg Egan as being the collection of the year you've got to hunt down and get a copy of, even if it's just in digital. Uh, I think it's a summation of a major career that's been long overdue. 
And since some books uh, will be obvious no-brainers for readers, like I think everyone who likes dark fiction is going to pick up Alan Datlow's Echoes. Everybody mm. who wants to know about science fiction will probably pick up Gardner Dozois' final anthology, the, the very best of the best, 35 years of the best science fiction. So I would recommend, because I was deeply moved by it, Palestine plus 100 stories from a century after the Nakba, which Basma Galayini edited for Comma Press, and which I loved very much. The one other book I'm going to throw in to round it out, because, Mm. hey, I can, and we're at T-minus five minutes, is The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday by Saad Hussain. I edited it, I acquired it, so I you take it with a pinch of salt, but I think it's arguably one of the smartest, most timely, most enjoyable books of the year. It, it, it On the surface of it, it's a buddy story about an aging, well, a millennia-old jinn and a cranky, aging, frankly, slightly homicidal Gurkha warrior, but actually is about climate change and about... Mm-hmm. Um, reputation economies and all sorts of things. It's a really fascinating, smart book by a really fascinating, smart writer. And if it were just a whisker shorter, would be in my year's best. The uh, I, I, I wanted to say something about that as well, partly because it, uh, it, in addition to everything you say, was probably the funniest thing I read last year in the genre. It's just really, really well done. The voice is uh, is remarkable, and I have to just add as a footnote and. If you don't mind a plug for your fourth, I just read his short story in your forthcoming made-to-order anthology, and he's he's he, he knows how to do this. It's not a one-off. He's still as lively, as thoughtful, and as funny as he was in that novella. These are the only two things I've read by him. I did not read the Jin novel, which I have, and I'm going to, uh, because this is just a remarkably lively and entertaining and thoughtful new voice. Absolutely. One of the books that I'm most, well, the two things I'm looking forward to in 2020 that I'll foreshadow. One is a, st- there's a book coming out and I don't have a title or publisher yet, but Mimi Mondal is doing a South mm-hmm. Asian science fiction anthology, which has an, a new original story by Saad Hussain in it. So I'm desperately going oh, to excellent. read that. And Saad, Saad is writing, uh, Kundo Wakes Up, which is a new novella for me for Tor.com, which I'm eagerly waiting to read because it hasn't come to me yet, but that should be, you know, with me fairly soon, hi Saad, if you're listening. Um, so yeah, it was it was actually it was a good year, and I'm really looking forward to 2020. I mean, we had this discussion, I think maybe in a aborted podcast we're putting together, because mm-hmm. uh, we did try to record for you, dear listeners, and we will try to be better. But I'm actually really excited about 2020. There's some great books coming out. Some I've already got. Some you've already read. Uh, there's Agency, mm-hmm. the William Gibson. There's The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. But all kinds of other books are, that are coming along. So it's, I think it's going to be a good year, and we're going to make it a good year for the Cood Street Podcast, too, and but for you listeners. I, I think we will as well. And, and, and the one thing I'm looking forward to this year, and I've said this before, uh, is what I don't know yet. At the beginning of 2019, uh, had you told me that there was, I believe, a Bangladeshi writer, is mm-hmm. the same Bangladeshi, that uh, was, w- would write... Two of the most entertaining stories, well, okay, one of the most entertaining stories of the year, and not having read his novel, I would, I was astonished to find that. And every year there seems to be a handful of writers that I've just literally never heard of at the beginning of the year, and by the end of the year I'm recommending everything I can find by them. That's what happens to crusty old people like us, Gary, and that's why we need everything to keep changing so we can keep finding new stuff. I guess so. And, uh, and and I know there are new novels coming out from, for example, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, including, I guess, a non-science fiction novel. Mexican Gothic. Uh, Mexican Gothic. Mexican Gothic, yeah. Uh, that's that's another voice which I discovered, not this year, but uh, with Signal to Noise, the first novel a couple of years ago, that just strikes me as being very, very original. So the last thing I'd mention, yep. just to throw off, is a few writers who whose books weren't really in genre. I know I keep coming back to this sort of thing. But there were major writers that I admire terrifically. Nina Allen wrote The Dollmaker, which may or may not be fantasy because it has fantasy stories in it. Uh, Brian Evanson had a collection of short stories out, some of which might be science fiction, some of which might be horror, all of which are Brian Evanson. And and there was a terrific novel by Elizabeth Hand, which is a mystery novel that doesn't have any fantasy in it at all. But it's about one of the great crazed fantasists of the 20th century, Henry Darger, and that's her novel, Curious Toys. 
which everybody says great things about. It's great. And so we get towards the end of an episode. We don't normally do what I'm about to do, but just a note to everybody who's listening. If you enjoy the Cood Street podcast, we, we, we do not seek your money, though, hey, throw it our way if you want to somehow. Hey, what? Uh, but if you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving a review for us on iTunes or on whatever service you, you download the podcast from. And we did mention that the Hugo Awards are open for nominations. And, you know, we wouldn't really hate it if you were to keep us in mind when you're putting your nominations together. But for the moment, Gary, I think that's about it for the first or the second weekend of January of 2020, isn't it? It's not bad as long as your continent remains solvent and and, and relatively moist. Um, (laughs) We should be able to do more of these. Well, yes. Here, here's to a moist well, Australia. Well, moist, moist might have been the wrong choice of words there. I'm moist sorry is just not that. the best word in some cases. Cake, like oh, other no. than cake, you just don't want to know about anything being moist. But anyway, so yes, here, here's to a, a, a more uh, a, 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 a calmer, gentler Australia, to a, a great year ahead, and to some really exciting conversations we're going to have. And of course, we will, we hope, see one another and you, dear listener, in Wellington, New Zealand, in August for the 78th World Science Fiction Convention, Con Zealand. Absolutely. I look forward to that as well. But until... Until then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. So it has.